This Parsha podcast is dedicated by my dear friend, Aaron Finley, in honor of his daughter, Anne Meredith, Chana Miriam, on the occasion of her bas mitzvah, which is happening this week. Big mazel tov from the whole Parsha podcast family, and also in loving memory of his mother, Miriam Finley, may her soul be elevated in heaven. I was just thinking that we're about halfway through this cycle of the Parsha podcast. You know, we're about in the middle of the book of Leviticus. It's hard to believe. We're already halfway through the seventh cycle of the Parsha podcast with the unending love and help that we are receiving every single day from the Almighty. And I have to say, I'm already thinking about next year. I'm already thinking about what's going to be. Will there be uh, an eighth year for the Parsha podcast? An unprecedented eighth year for the Parsha podcast. And already my, my mind was churning. And the gears were moving. I was thinking of a theme for next year. Please, God. So we had, of course, the A and Q and the exquisite insight. And this year's theme was the raising of the Parsha IQ and the general intelligence as well. And I have to tell you, I came up with a new theme with the help of the Almighty for next year. I'm really excited. I think it's going to be the best theme yet. I'm not going to unveil it quite yet, but we have exciting things to look forward to with the help of the Almighty. Very excited about that. But of course, even more excited right now to get together and to study this amazing double parsh that we have, Tazria and Mitzorah. This contains perhaps the most intricate and arcane laws of the Torah, the laws of purity and impurity. Of course, for us, we don't even have a temple. Sacrificial laws are just abstract. They're theoretical for us. And certainly the laws of purity and purity, even in the times of the temple, they were very mysterious and esoteric. But that's the subject of our Parsha. Now, of course, we have to remind everyone that purity and impurity have nothing to do with hygiene or cleanliness. And in fact, many of the processes demand the immersion in a mitzvah prior to purification, and you actually have to be perfectly clean before you immerse in a mitzvah. So this has nothing to do with cleanliness or with hygiene. It's totally different than physical dirtiness, something completely spiritual, but it may manifest itself in a physical way. So we start off with the impurity of a woman who recently gave birth. Then there's a whole process of purification after having a baby, and then there are sacrifices, the elevation offering, and the sin offering. And if it's a boy, there's seven days of impurity followed by 33 days of purity. And if it's a girl, it's all double, 14 days of impurity followed by 66 days of purity. And in the middle of that, we are reminded that the newborn boys are circumcised at eight days. But the bulk of both parshas, Tazria and Mitzorah, they deal with a different class of impurity, and that is tsaras, which is a spiritual disease that also has physical manifestations on the person's body or garments or home. And we read about the diagnosis of the tsaras. It has to be done by the Kohen. What if there's uncertain saras? You are quarantined for seven days until you can have a more definitive diagnosis. And there are all sorts of variables, different colors, different shades, the depth of the splotch. What about a burn? What about inflammation? Where is the saras located? 
Is it in a place where there is hair, where the hair maybe fell out? What about if the entire body is covered in white? Then they are counterintuitively pure. And we read about the seclusion, the isolation of the Mitzorah, the person who is afflicted with Tzaras, they have to go outside the camp, and they're ostracized. They're an outcast. They are a pariah. They have to warn everyone to stay away from them. You're not allowed to go within four cubits, around eight feet, of the Mitzorah. He's excommunicated. He lets his hair grow wild. And when he's alone, when he is secluded in isolation, he is encouraged to contemplate what he did, to repent, and hopefully to undo the causes, the spiritual causes that led to this spiritual malady. So this is a very intricate and elaborate halacha. How do you become someone who is a Mitzorah? How do you get diagnosed with Saras? And then Parshat Mitzorah is all about the many different processes that are needed to remediate the Tsaras once it has been affirmatively diagnosed. Now, if this subject you find to be confusing or complicated, it's comforting to know that you are not alone. You open up the Talmud, whenever it talks about this subject called negaim, meaning afflictions, it is shorthand, the word negaim is shorthand for the most difficult of Torah subjects. When the great Rabbi Akiva, when he opined on matters of agatic nature, so the non-halachic parts of the Torah, his colleagues were disappointed. He says, you have the intelligence, you have the capacity to study Nagayim, the leprosy, not leprosy, but the Tsaras. Why are you dealing with the easy things? Let us deal with the easy things. You have the capacity, you have the wherewithal, that few others have to engage in the understanding and the study of Nergaim, of Tsaras. So in the times of the Talmud, we know, so going back 2,000 years, when these giants were so much more connected to Torah, so much more immersed in Torah, so much more experts in, in matters of Torah, and these subjects were confusing and confounding and challenging to these incredible exemplars, these giants of our history, what can we expect to know about it? It's very hard for us to understand the subject to its fullest, but nevertheless, we don't shy away from a challenge here on the Parsha Podcast. I'm sitting in the Torch Center, after all, in Houston, Texas. I'm not going to shy away. Let's accept the challenge and see if we can discover something that's understandable to us, beneficial for us, insightful on our Parsha. So let's begin. I want to start with an amazing and at least on the surface, quite inexplicable Rashi. It's the very first one of the Parsha. Parsha's Tazria starts off with a woman. She, with the help of the Almighty, is pregnant, and she has a baby boy. And there are some laws. There are the laws governing the purity and the impurity and the status of the woman, seven days of impurity, 33 days of purity, and so on, the various sacrifices, of course, the circumcision on day eight, that's how the Parsha starts off. Now, last Parsha, Parsha Shmini, it ended with the laws of kosher and non-kosher animals, laws of kosher animals and the requirements, the signs to render an animal kosher, split hooves, it's got to chew its cud, fish, the fins and the scales, and the birds. Last week's Parsha ended off with the laws of purity and impurity of animals. And our Parsha starts off with the laws of purity and impurity of humans. 
And that's what Rashi's talking about, the first Rashi in our parsha, the first comment from the greatest of all the commentators, the first comment that he offers in our parsha is about the juxtaposition of the end of last week's parsha to the beginning of our parsha. And he notes something very fascinating. Going all the way back to Genesis. Genesis, of course, we read about the creation of the animals and of the constellations, the sun and the moon, and the trees and the grasses, and the animals, and the fish, and the humans. And what came first in Genesis? Man, of course, created in day six. And all the animals precede man. So Rashi tells us, just as was true in the creation of humans versus animals, the animals came first. So too, when it comes to the Torah, Torah of the animals comes first. Last week's parish, we read about the laws of kosher and non-kosher of animals. The Torah of the animals is addressed. And then we move on to the Torah of the humans. With creation, animals came first. And with the laws, the laws of the animal come before the laws of the human. You, of course, would imagine it would be more sensible to first tell us the laws of, of mankind, of humanity, and then maybe the laws of the animals. But the animals come first. Why? Because the creation of the animals comes before the creation of man in Genesis. And that's why the Torah follows that same pattern. The Torah, the laws, governing animals comes first, and only subsequently in our parsha do we read the laws governing humanity. Really interesting idea, the first Rashi on our parsha. Now, the obvious question is, wait a minute, what does the order, the sequencing of Genesis have to do with the sequencing of the laws? We have the creation of the animals before the humans in Genesis. And now we're on to other things. We're on to the laws, the Torah, governing the animals and governing the humans. Why would it follow that same pattern? Rashi just says, well, it follows the same pattern. Just as was true with creation, so too is true when it tells us the laws and the Torah. Animals come before humans. But why? What's the logic? So we already said in the rebroadcast podcast, the Maharal says an incredible idea. When we have the laws of the Torah, it's not its own independent thing from creation. They're connected. And that's what the pattern has to follow. When we have the Torah of a given thing, that is the completion of the creation of that thing. Genesis was only a partial creation. 99.9% of the work was done by the Almighty. But he left something for us to do. That little final little bit, that is our responsibility. And how do we do it? How do we complete Genesis? How do we finish creation, put the finishing touches, the polishing of Genesis? We do that with the Torah. The Torah shows us how to finish it off, how to put the final finishing touches to creation which is a very fascinating, profound idea that God did almost all the work. 
He wants us to serve as his partners in finishing Genesis, in concluding creation. And we do that by following his instructions. The manual that he gives us to do that, namely the Torah. So that's this first Rashi in our Parsha. Very fascinating and profound idea. But if you think about it, there are some glaring questions. Rashi tells us that, well, when it came to creation, the animals preceded the humans. And therefore, when it comes to the Torah, the animals are going to precede the humans. And therefore, we have the laws of the animals, which animals are kosher and which animals are not kosher. And only then do we have the laws of the Torah, so to speak, of the humans. So question number one is, wait a minute. I don't believe that animals have any Torah. The laws of the end of last year's parasha that talk about the kosher and the non-kosher animals, those are laws for us. Those are laws for humans. Animals aren't bound by the restrictions of kosher. Animals don't have any Torah. We are bound by the laws of the Torah. We are bound by these guidelines of what we can and cannot and must not eat. And therefore, even the laws of what renders an animal kosher and what renders it non-kosher, that's our Torah. That's not the Torah of the animals. Question number one. Question number two, the, the premise of Rashi is that, well, we have to follow the pattern of, of Genesis. First, the animals are created, and then the humans are created. And then, therefore, it comes to the laws, like the completion of Genesis. First, we have the completion of the animals, and then we have the completion of the humans. First, we have the laws of the animals, and then we have the laws of the humans. Well, if that were to be true, well, you should start much earlier. We have been reading about myriads of laws for humans in the Torah. Right now, we're in the book of Leviticus. We're advanced into the Torah. We have the Ten Commandments, you recall, Exodus chapter 20. Those commandments were all for us. And even before that, we had the laws of Passover and the Paschal offering and eating matzah and not eating chametz. And even before that, in Genesis, there were three mitzvahs. And all those mitzvahs were laws for humans, humans exclusively. So if there is this principle that the laws of the animals must precede the laws of the humans, well, it's not true. Because now we're reading the laws, some laws of the humans. But we already had many, many countless laws for the humans that came before Parshashmini, before the laws of kosher and non-kosher, which animals are kosher. Hitherto, we've read many laws, more than a hundred mitzvos have been featured in the Torah already, way before the laws of the animals, what renders an animal kosher and what renders it not kosher, in a bevy of areas of human life, it's already been addressed. So what is Rashi telling us? What's this the first Rashi in the whole Parsha? What a mystery. Such a strange idea. Oh, creation... The animals came first, and therefore, if we're going to have the laws, the animals have to come first as well. Okay, that's not true, because we've had many, many laws. For humans exclusively, that preceded the laws of the animal. So I, I think there's something very deep going on over here. I want to suggest the following. 
I think Rashi is differentiating between laws. He doesn't say the laws. If you notice, you read it very carefully. It says the Torah of the animals precedes the Torah of the humans. Not the laws of the animals precede the laws of the humans. I think that Rashi is telling us that there's maybe two different classes of mitzvos. We have mitzvos, many, 613 mitzvos. And of course, each one of them is a divine instruction and it has such power and such insight and such depth, such profundity, such power. But there's something about the Torah, this idea of the totality of mankind. When you measure a human, is this human proper? Is this human admissible? Similar to the laws of kosher. You have an animal. Is it kosher or is it not kosher? Is it 100% good or is it 100% not good? Something very comprehensive, so to speak, about these laws. Of course, the laws governing kosher are laws for us. But is this animal, is it righteous? Not righteous. Is it pure? Is it admissible? Is it kosher or not? You have a set of laws that are, that are different. It's not like specific, discrete, isolated laws. It's the evaluation of the essence of a thing. And the first time we have a law that tells us this thing in its entirety is admissible, is kosher, is okay, passes the test. The first time we have that is with the animals. The end state of these animals is righteous on one side, kosher, admissible on one side, and non-kosher, impure, problematic on the other side. Think of it as the difference between the forest and the trees, as they say. The details and the bottom line. The totality of the animals, that is addressed before the totality of the humans. Last week's parasha, we read about the totality of the animals. Which ones are kosher? Which ones are not kosher? Of course, that law applies only to the, to the humans. The animals don't have the laws of kosher. But when it tells us the Torah of the animals, which is like the bottom line of the animals, is this animal good or not? Is it admissible or not? We have that first with the animals. And in our Parsha, we're going to read about the end state of man. And what determines whether the man, the, the, the Torah, the way it's Rashi, I think, is saying us, the Torah of the man, the bottom line of the man. When we say man, we mean, of course, mankind, humanity. Is a person admissible? Are they kosher? Are they in their totality, the bottom line, the big picture, the 50,000-foot view? Are they righteous? Are they pure? Are they admissible or not? That is the subject of our parsha. Accordingly, Rashi is not just telling us a nice pattern. Oh, you see a pattern in Genesis, and now the pattern follows here as well. Rashi is telling us to read this Parsha, Parsha Tazria, and to a certain extent Mitzvah as well. Read it very carefully, because just as the animals, there was something about the cow that made it kosher and the camel that made it not kosher. The pig is not admissible. The deer is. The sheep is. 
humans ultimately are going to fall into one camp or the other. And in our parsha, we're going to discover what it takes to make the totality of the human righteous, admissible. Now, you'll notice a pattern if you read the various laws of our parsha. And of course, this is maybe the biggest subject of all. So there's a lot more than what we're going to share. But we'll share a pattern that is evident, or you could see why it would garner this classification of being the determinant of a person's admissibility. Many, perhaps all, of the laws of our parsha seem to hearken back to Adam and Eve and the garden and the sin and the serpent. Parsha starts off with the impurity of birth. A woman gives birth and she's impure. And of course, I was trying to figure out why is she impure? This is the greatest mitzvah. The first mitzvah is to bring a child to this world. Nothing's more righteous. There's no greater act of selflessness than to bring a child to this world. Why is she impure? Midrash tells us this stems from Adam and Eve. The impurity that is foisted upon a woman after she was birth, that's the result of Adam and Eve and the influence of their sin still being present in their descendants. In the future, we will read, once the sin of Adam and Eve has been rectified, this impurity will not exist. Of course, you go back to Genesis, the actual punishment to the woman is that she's going to suffer in childbirth. Previously, the Talmud tells us, two went up into bed and four came out. It was much more seamless and painless and easy to bear children. Cain and Abel born on the same day that their parents were created. This whole idea of waiting nine months, 40 weeks, until you have a baby, that is a relic. That is a byproduct of the sin of Adam and Eve. And the impurity, that too, the Midrash tells us, is a result of the original impurity of Adam and Eve and their sin. And then there's the circumcision. As he does tell us that the foreskin, that is another name and that is emblematic of the evil inclination, which as we know, was introduced to the human experiment thanks to the sin of Adam and Eve. So the mitzvah to remove the foreskin and to expose the crown, that is symbolic of our national, but really the, the species-wide responsibility to undo and reverse the sin of Adam, to restore man, mankind, to his pre-sin purity. Adam, the Midrash tells us, was created circumcised. But he reversed it. This is another way of saying, Adam was created without a Yetzihara, without an evil inclination, without a foreskin. But he, thanks to his capitulation and his sin, he brought the Yetzihara, he imbibed the Yetzihara. He absorbed, so to speak, 
the foreskin. And the Parsha starts off, and it tells us, in a way, in a seemingly oblique way, it's talking about the purity and the impurity, and somebody just throws in, oh, there's also a circumcision on day eight. This, of course, is what it's all about in an ultimate fashion, to circumcise, not just to do the physical act, but all that it represents, to undo the influence of the sin of Adam, and to restore the dominion of God the way it was in the garden. The foreskin, as we mentioned, is synonymous with the Yitzhara. And we forge a pact with God over the objections of the false God. And we pledge ourselves to reveal the crown of God in the world. And then we read about the sacrifices that a woman must bring. She has to bring an Ola, an elevation sacrifice, and a Chatas, and a sin offering. And I was trying to figure out, where's the sin? She had a baby. It's a great mitzvah. It's not a sin. It's the opposite of a sin. So the sources tell us that, uh, well, maybe during the throes of labor and delivery, she pledged, she promised, she swore that she's going to never sleep with her husband again. Or maybe she blasphemed during her painful labor. And that's the sin that she needs an atonement for. Those sources try to address the question of why is there a sin offering? But there's an amazing Rabbeinu B'chai here in verse 7. He asks the question, wait a minute. The kind of offering she should bring is a thanksgiving offering. To thank God that she went through childbirth and, and delivery, and she's healthy, and she has a healthy child... Why is she bringing a sin offering? Where's the sin? And then he suggests, listen to this. The sin, it's not for her sin. It's for her mother's sin. Oh, and not her mother, the first generation, not her grandmother, not her great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, but the ultimate mother. It has to do with Eve. She's the mother of us all. And we know that the whole childbirth hassle, that is the pregnancy, gestation, all that discomfort and pain, that is thanks to Eve. And absent that, had Adam and Eve not sinned, Rabbeinu Chai tells us, and this, of course, idea is established in the literature Conception would happen absent any lust. It would happen just naturally, just as a tree bears fruit without any lust, so too humans would bear fruit without any lust. But why is there lust involved in this sacrosanct mission of procreation? That's due to Adam and Eve and what they did and what they brought upon humanity. And some influence of Eve, we are told, is featured in her daughters. Because after all, if the root is corrupt, then the branches and the leaves are corrupt as well. And therefore, there's some element of a vestige, if you will, a component, an influence of the sin of Adam and Eve that's still featured today. And she brings a sin sacrifice to atone for that. Our Parsha starts off 
right away with the sin of Adam and the mistakes of Adam, Adam and Eve, and the encouragement of the serpent. And our mission really is to reverse that, to roll back the sin and its after effects. And perhaps this is what Rashi is hinting to. The, the Torah of the animals come first, and then the Torah of the humans. Well, what does that mean? It means what makes an animal kosher completely? What makes a human kosher completely? What renders a person proper, okay, admissible? If they undo the sin of Adam, if they undo the sin of Eve, if they reverse the impact of that terrible foray of humanity into the world, then they are admissible. They can enter the garden once again. Now, the rest of Tazria and most of Parshman Surah touch by the laws of Tsaras. Why would a person have Tsaras, this skin ailment that's really rooted in a spiritual cause? So Zedas tell us that the primary reason is for speaking Lashon Hara. In fact, in the Torah, there are two people who get Tsaras, Siblings, it's a good trivia question, Miriam and Moshe. Miriam gets Tsaras when she belittles Moshe's prophecy. She equates her prophecy to Moshe's prophecy. When she discovers that Moshe separated from his wife because he has to always be ready to have communion, to have prophecy with the Almighty, she says, wait a minute, God spoke to us as well. We're also prophets. And we never separated from our spouses. And right away she gets Tsaras. Why? Because she belittled verbally the prophecy of Moshe. And the verse tells us this is in Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 24. We have to be very careful with the affliction of Tsaras. And we have to remember what the Almighty did to Miriam. And our status tells us, the Ramban there tells us, that this is an instruction to refrain from speaking, Lashon Hara, to refrain from speaking evil talk. Miriam spoke evilly, of course, on her level, against her brother. And she was stricken with Saras. And we have to remember that and make sure we don't make that same mistake. We don't speak Lashon Hara. And that's what the Torah is telling us to remember what happened with Miriam. Now, Moshe is the other person who received Tzaras in the Torah. This is in chapter 4 of Exodus, when Moshe was negotiating with God as to whether or not he's going to go and represent the Almighty before Pharaoh. And chapter 4 begins, Moshe tells God, they're not going to believe me. They, they'll say I'm a fraud. God didn't appear to you. So the Almighty gives Moshe two signs. Take your staff and throw it on the ground. And it turned into a serpent. And Moshe ran away and got to grab the end of it, the tail, and it turned back into a staff. And then in chapter 4, verse 6, God tells Moshe, put your hand in your garment, in your bosom. And he puts it in and he takes it out and his hand is white as snow. He has tsaras. And Rashi tells us, why did Moshe receive Tsaras? Because he spoke Lashon Hara against his fellow co-religionists. He said, they won't believe me. He challenged the faith of the masses of the nation. 
And therefore, the Amari, just as he did later on with Miriam, the Amari struck Moshe with Saras. Of course, he sticks his hand back in, and he pulls it out, and his hand has been healed. And these signs, these two signs, God tells Moshe, this will prove your legitimacy, your veracity as a prophet. Of course, we know that the evils of evil talk are very well documented. Lashonara, speaking evilly, saying, saying words that are improper, saying bad things about other people. This is one of the worst crimes in our, in our faith, in our philosophy. The Talmud tells us that there are four groups of people that don't merit to receive the Shechina, meaning they don't merit to have a place in the world to come. And all of them are people who use their mouth and their capacity for verbal communication and articulation. They use that improperly. The scoffers, the flatterers, the liars, and the habitual Lashon Hara speakers. The Rambam tells us, this is sourced in earlier sources as well, in this world, God does not typically punish us for our crimes, for our misdeeds, for our sins. But there is retribution that's exacted for three different sins. The three big ones. Idolatry, illicit sexual immorality, and murder. Oh, and Lashon Hara, that's equal to all three of those put together. The rabbis tell us, you murder one person, you're a horrific, heinous criminal. But you only killed one person. You speak Lashon Hara, you killed three people. The speaker, the listener, and the subject. When the Ramam lists the people who lose their portion of the world to come, who have no hope for eternity, included amongst all the horrific sinners, the heretics, the apostates, the heathens, people that our non-believers, the murderers, etc. He includes the people who use their mouth and words and communication inappropriately. Lashon hara. Of course, we know this idea we've spoken about in the past. The essence of man, the defining characteristic of humanity is our capacity to speak. When God made man a living being, the translation of Uncleus tells us he made him into a speaking being. What differentiates us from animals is our capacity to speak, even today. The artificial intelligence, we spoke about that last week. Artificial intelligence, it's all about language and language processing and almost the idea that our intelligence, our advanced intelligence, relatively speaking, compared to the chimpanzees and other animals, it is defined almost by language. According to the Torah, man is, when we say man, of course, we always mean mankind. I don't want to get into trouble with this. Humanity, we are our speech. That is our defining characteristic, and that defines who we are. That's the evaluation, so to speak, of our humanity, our righteousness. If you just had the words that a person speaks, the usage of their superpower, their language, you would know how righteous they really are. There's a wild story in the Talmud about one of the sages. This is in the book of Sanhedrin, page 65b. 
One of the sages created a human. It's easier said than done, I would imagine. A golem, if you will. And this person was totally indistinguishable from a human, save the person's inability to speak. And he sent him on a mission to go get something from the other rabbi. And the other rabbi starts talking to this person, and he's not responding. So that tipped off the great rabbi. If you're not speaking, you're not a human. You were made by one of my colleagues. I can tell. Go back to where you came from. Go back to your dust. If humans ever get around to creating, they made like a a, a sheep, right? What they do? They made a uh, a clone. What was the name of that? Was it Dolly? That was the sheep that they cloned. If humans ever succeed in cloning humans, this is the one thing that they cannot infuse in their creation. You cannot make a human talk. Only God can do that. And that's what makes you a human. So our speech and our words, that's who we are. And if someone speaks bad, then they're bad. And of course, when it gets to Olam Abba, when it gets to the afterlife for eternity, they're going to have to live with that classification. And that's what our parsha talks about. The consequences of Lashon Hara, of evil talk. Now, it's interesting. This too has very deep parallels with Adam and Eve going all the way back to Genesis. The Midrash tells us that the snake, its crime was Lashon Hara. It spoke evilly, and that's why it caused, that's how it caused the humans to blunder. The snake told the humans, oh, God doesn't want you to eat from the tree because he ate from the tree and that's how he got all those powers. If you eat from the tree, you'll have those powers as well. That was improper language, improper words. So how did the Almighty punish him? The snake has tsaras. The lines, the, the coloration on the skin, that's tsaras. The snake has tsaras. And so it's so interesting, when Moshe spoke negatively about the Jews, so God, of course, tells him to put his hand into his garment, and it turns out it's white. He pulls it out, it's white. But he also tells him to throw the staff on the floor, and it becomes a serpent. Why did his staff turn into a snake? So Rashi there tells us. God is telling him, you mimicked, you copied the snake. You took a page out of the snake's playbook. And that's why it turned into a snake. Lashonara is the craft of the serpent. The Talmud elsewhere tells us, Tinus 8a, that all the animals are going to ask the snake. We don't get it. When a lion's hungry, he kills and he eats the prey. And when a wolf is hungry, it kills and it eats the prey. But you, you just inject your venom and you kill the, 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 the person or whatever it is that you're trying to kill and you just slither away. What benefit do you have in doing what you do? And the snake's going to respond, says the Talmud. Well, what benefit does someone who speaks Lashon Hara have? 
Sometimes you see humans are just snake-like. They can say terrible things about another person and receive no tangible benefit. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't read to you a little bit of Rambam's famous essay on speech and Lashon that he records at the end of the laws of Tsaras. He tells us that Tsaras, of course, is not something which is natural. It's not a natural stin ailment. It's a miracle. And it's a miracle to warn us about the evils of evil talk. If someone speaks Lashon Ara, the color of the walls of his home will change. And if he repents, his house will be cleansed. But if he continues to speak Lashon Ara, the house will have to be dismantled. And then his garments will be afflicted. And if he repents, great. If not, then it will affect his actual stin. And he'll get saras. And he'll be separated from the general populace. And the reason for all of this is all due to speech, to scoffing, to mockery, and to evil talk. And this is what the Torah is telling us. We should be very careful to avoid Saras. And remember, we must remember what God did to Miriam. Miriam spoke about her own brother that she loved. And she was older than him. And she tended to him. And she raised him. And she endangered herself to watch him. And she had no ill will towards him. She made a mistake that she equated him to other prophets. And he it didn't bother him at all. He was the humblest of men. It didn't bother him. He was willing to forego that slight to his honor. Nonetheless, she was stricken right away with Saras. All the more so how dangerous it is to speak bad about other people. If Miriam, the righteous, spoke about Moshe, the righteous, and he didn't mind, and it wasn't so bad, it was kind of innocuous relative to other evil talk. Nevertheless, she was stricken. We had better be very careful. And therefore, we should avoid bad company, advises us Rambam. Because when you sit around and you hang out with people that are not righteous, you'll start talking about, first of all, nonsense, and then you'll start talking negatively about righteous people, and then you'll insult even the words of the Torah, and you'll become a heretic, and all that is because you were hanging out with bad people who are saying bad things. Instead, you should dedicate your capacity to speak, your superpower, to words of Torah and words of wisdom. Our Parsha, I think there's a subtext, there's a pattern that's running through it. This is the Torah of man. We had the Torah of the animals. What makes an animal kosher? What makes a human kosher? What renders a person admissible? goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and the serpent. We have the baby and the impurity and the circumcision and the sacrifices and all that is evoking the sin of Adam and Eve and the hopes of undoing it and its ill effects. And then we have Taras. And Taras is the consequences of the craft of the serpent. He spoke Lashon Ara and got Taras. And as long as we do the same, there's something wrong with us. We're not kosher. 
we have not rendered ourselves admissible. There could be many righteous things that we did, many mitzvos, but who are we? We are what we speak. People say, you are what you eat. The Torah would say, you are what you say, what you speak. And if you speak evil, you are evil. And isn't that unfortunate, especially when you realize, like the serpent, you don't benefit from any evil talk. You know, someone steals, of course, it's against the Torah. It's not encouraged. It's immoral. It's bad. But at least there's some benefit. At least you gain something. Of course, you don't actually gain something. But at least there's some sort of appreciation that you have. Now you have something that you didn't have previously. If you say something evil about another person, if you berate, ridicule, insult, scoff at another person, you gain nothing and you lose so much. The Talmud tells us that when someone speaks Shonara against another person, there's a transfer of righteousness and guilt. Mitzvos of the speaker are transferred to the person that they were speaking about. And sins of the subject are now transferred back to the speaker. It's such a bad bargain. It makes no sense. It's just harmful. And that is what potentially may be holding us back from our Torah, from our righteousness, from making us kosher. I'll tell you something cool. There is a a law or a practice. Most people are not familiar with this for obvious reasons. After a mohel, a ritual circumciser, does a brismila, a circumcision, what do they do with the foreskin? Most people don't actually follow. Some people have a hard time, myself included, even watching it. Getting too close. What do they do with the foreskin? So the halakha tells us that they have to Put it in the dust. And the sages tell us the reason why it's put in the dust is because the foreskin is the serpent. The Yetzara, the serpent, is the foreskin. And of course, who eats the dust? The Imani tells the snake it's going to eat the dust. And just as the verse tells us in Mishle in Proverbs chapter 25, if your enemy is hungry, feed it bread. Your enemy, the serpent is hungry, give it the forestin. Interesting idea. Maybe it's not something we should talk about at the table. It's a little bit uh, queasy. But this is the parsha. This is the subject of the parsha. We want to do a lot of good things, of course. But there's more than just doing a bunch of isolated, righteous things. Who are we? What's our identity? What's the totality of who we are? Is that righteous as well? I think Rashi's telling us. We could have someone who's wicked. God forbid. Inadmissible, not kosher, impure. And they could have boatloads of mitzvahs. If they don't take the lesson of our parsha and render themselves completely righteous, admissible, they're going to have a really hard time when in heaven they judge them and they judge them based, of course, on their behavior, 
but also who are you? What's your identity? And we all want to render ourselves admissible to Olam In general, we want to succeed in life, not just in the details, but in the big picture. We want to fulfill our responsibilities. We want to accomplish not just the isolated piecemeal, a little bit here, a little bit there, the mitzvos, but to do what we are here to do. And of course, on a big scale, that means to figure out what Adam did and just reverse that. And that's very hard. But you know what's less hard? Making sure that we don't speak anything bad about any other person. And that is doable. That's doable. Everyone is capable of that. And we're promised some incredible things. If you want life, you want total life. You want every part of yourself to be alive, right? How do you have life? The verse tells us, who is the man who desires life? You want life? Listen up. What do you need to do? Nitzar l'shoncha meira. Guard your tongue from evil. Usvasecha midaber mirma. Make sure your mouth, your lips, your tongue don't speak anything deceitful or wrong. You do that, you have life. The Talmud gives us a great story about one of the great rabbis who announced to the public, who wants life? Who wants life? And everyone gathered around, oh, there's some sort of potion, some sort of elixir, a panacea. Who wants life? Guard your tongue. Just as we had last week's Parsha. There's something about certain animals make them completely kosher and certain animals are completely not kosher. That's the Torah of the animals. Of course, the laws don't apply to the animals. But there's something that, in a comprehensive way, evaluates the animal and says, this is completely righteous. In our parsha, we learn how to do that as a human. You want life? You want life? He says twice. You want life in this world? You want life in the next? Guard your tongue from any evil. The Midrash tells us, if you want to acquire Eternity for cheap. You want it in an expensive way. You have to undo the sin of Adam. Adam was kicked out of the garden. Well, you have to figure out why he was kicked out and make sure that you just reverse that and then you'll be allowed back in. But you want to do it on the cheap? Guard your tongue from evil. You do that, and you are completely righteous. An incredible thing. You're completely righteous, and you are kosher, and you are admissible to the afterlife. May we all be so fortunate. Okay, we like to end off the podcast with a question, because the questions are so good, so wonderful. It's important to think about and to cogitate upon. And this is a very difficult question. It's very difficult because the, the subject matter is also very, feels problematic, feels wrong. And that is the Talmud tells us that converts, if someone converts to Judaism, 
They're a convert. Is that a good thing for us? Is that a bad thing for us? Well, the Talmud tells us that it's as difficult for the Jewish people as tsaras when non-Jews convert. It's so difficult for the Jewish people when non-Jews convert. The converts are as difficult for us, for the Jewish people, for the Jewish nation, as tsaras. That's what the Talmud tells us in many places. The book of Kedushin, page 70b. The book of Yvamos, page, I think it's 46 or 47b. Now, what does this actually mean? So there are many, many different interpretations as to what the message is. In some of the interpretations, we're told that this is actually praising the converts. If someone converts, they're a Jew by choice. They opt in. They end up being so much more meticulous and fastidious about mitzvos. They're so righteous that they make us look bad by comparison. That's difficult for us at Saras because now our flaws are being highlighted, are being amplified, are being magnified. You see a convert, so righteous, so committed. And look at these other Jews, less committed, less excited, less enthusiastic about, about Torah. That's some of the interpretations of what this Talmud means. Others say, well, it's maybe bad. Why? Because you have someone who converts and they're not really experts in the religion and they're not really prepared necessarily for the rigors of Torah life and their misdeeds and their mistakes now because they're Jewish, they're part of the nation and it could affect the whole nation. And therefore, it's it's bad for us, not because of the righteousness of the converts, but because of the mistakes of the converts that flow over to the rest of the nation. But here's the question. The Talmud is very precise in its word usage. Converts are as difficult to Israel, to the nation, like Tsaras. The question is why? Why specifically Tsaras? Why is this the example that is given when we talk about how difficult it is for the nation when others join. So I'll give you a, a quick answer, just because I saw this in uh, one of my friends, Rabbi Elchanan Shav, in his new book that I've been enjoying every week. He says something very interesting. The Majors tells us, Rashi quotes this, that the reason why we had Saras on the home and we were forced to dismantle the home because who previously lived, lived in those homes? Well, the Canaanites. And the Canaanites, they hid all their valuables and all their gold behind the walls of their homes. And we had no idea that there's treasures lying behind the walls of our new homes in Canaan. And definitely Mighty says, I'm going to make Taras on the walls of these homes. And I'll point to you which Stones you need to dislodge and remove, and you'll remove them, and you'll discover the treasure that lies behind it. So this is another angle of Tsaras. Tsaras, of course, is a punishment, but it's also a reward. Now the Talmud tells us the reason why the Almighty sent us into exile 
And the history of our nation is full of exile, all kinds of awful exiles that we've suffered tremendously in. Why did the Almighty send us into exile, says the Talmud of Psachim, page 87b? It's only so that we can collect the converts. So Taras, what's Taras? It's a terrible punishment. But it's also a wonderful reward. You have to dismantle your home, but you also get all that gold and valuables. The Gerim, the converts, those souls of Jews that are trapped amongst the Gentiles, they are the reason why we have to go into exile. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's terrible. But it's like Saras. It's like Saras because we have to suffer. We have to go into exile. We have to be subjected to awful, awful hosts that treat us terribly and marginalize us in many different ways. But like Saras, we also gain reward. We also benefit tremendously. Think about the great converts we've had throughout our history. Uncleus, of course. Rabbi Tivo was a son of a convert. Rabbi Meir was a descendant of converts, etc. But also the Jewish nation. We are achieving perfection. We're filling out the gaps that we need to fill out in order to achieve our perfection. And thus it precisely mirrors Tsaras in that, yes, it's terrible. You have to dismantle your home. That's also beneficial because now you find the treasure that lies beneath it. And I would say this is true, not just with respect to Tsaras of the home, of the house. If someone got a bit of Tsaras in their hand or in their arm or in their legs, it's also a blessing, a blessing in disguise. Now you know what you need to do. You've received a message from the Almighty, 21st century prophecy. The Almighty's telling you, I'm interested in you. I care for you. I want you to succeed. I want you to flourish. And you're, you're heading off track. You're going a bit awry. Your path is a little bit off course. I want you to fix it. I'm invested in you. I care for you. I want you to improve. That is a great treasure. Saras, by definition, yes, it's terrible. It's punishment. But ultimately, it's for our benefit. We have to go into exile. We have to suffer. The story of the Jewish people is a litany of, of all sorts of persecution that we have endured at the hands of the people that we've been in contact with. But ultimately, we're onto something very big here. We are the Almighty's people. And we're here to fix really what Adam did. We are at the vanguard of bringing this world to perfection. And it's not always pleasant to do that. To be responsible for all of humanity, it's not, it's not the easiest job in the world. But it is very deeply rewarding, and we wouldn't trade it for anything. I thank you for listening. This was a pleasure to discuss this wonderful double parsha from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. Have a wonderful day, a splendid rest of your week, an ascendant, transcendent Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week. And as always, my address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com.